The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. I'm on my leash again. <laughs> uh, I think it'll be all right. Okay, good to see you all again. <laughs> um, before I start um, picking up on dependent origination, which is where we finished off yesterday, and I'll do a little bit of recapping, for, certainly for anybody who's new to today. So I'm going to start off with a couple of quotations. might surprise you where they come from, but let me give you these quotations. Look on other lives beside your own. See what their troubles are and how they are born. Try to care about something in this vast world besides the gratification of your small, selfish desires. Try to care for what is best in thought and action, something that is good apart from the accidents of your own lot. That's the first one. And the second quote is this. The creature we help to save, though only, half reared, uh, only a half-reared linnet, bruised and lost by the wayside, how we watch and fence it and dote on its signs of recovery. Our pride becomes loving, our self becomes a not-self, for, for whose sake we become virtuous when we set to some hidden work of reclaiming a life from misery and look simply for our triumph in the secret joy, this one is better for me. Um, that's not Buddhist at all. It comes from uh, George Eliot, out of uh, a novel called Daniel Deronda, which if you haven't read it, I'd recommend. She did have Buddhist influences, by the way, as you probably gathered in some of that. Okay, to pick up on dependent origination. <laughs> well, okay, let me try and recap a little bit, um, just to kind of set the scene again. Dependent origination, the Buddha's most profound teaching, I think. Um, even in the developments of later traditions as we see them coming along, really in many ways they don't, in a sense, surpass what the Buddha has to say about dependent origination in the early texts. In many ways, even things like the Tibetan obsession with emptiness is nothing other than an extrapolation of some aspects which are already there within um, the notion of dependent origination as we find it in these uh, early Pali Nikayas. So we've got within the Pali Nikayas a perfect description of the mess. <laughs> you know, the sangsaric mess or the sangsaring mess, bearing in mind it's a verb form. You know, so we are if you like, we're, we're engaged in this little activity called sangsara-ing, <laughs> rather than being in a place called sangsara. Um, so we very much have to bear in mind this is an activity, and although I didn't mention it yesterday, perhaps I ought to mention it at this time, in many ways the notion of dependent origination covers everything as far as the Buddha is concerned. Nothing arises out of nothing, you know, there is no, if you like, first cause which isn't caused by something else. Everything is caused. Now, the classic generalized formula of dependent origination that the Buddha speaks about, I'm just going to paraphrase it, is this 
happens, this happens. This ceases to happen, this ceases to happen. Now, often it's translated as this occurs, that occurs, that ceases to occur, this ceases to occur. But actually, even that's a bit too linear. You know, it's actually this, 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 in both of these cases. But this is the generalized formula. This covers everything. You know, when the causes and conditions which sustain a particular phenomena cease to be, that phenomena ceases to be. And in many ways, this is a nice little recipe for getting out of samsara or out of samsaring activity. Because if there are causes and conditions which uphold samsaring activity, if we actually eliminate those causes, this edifice, this state of being that we're calling samsara, or I'm calling samsaring, that will cease to be. Hence, this is a big, big extrapolation of the second of the ennobling truths. You know, what is known as samudya, or there is an origin, or something which supports, the actual word samudya means something which supports dukkha, actually supports its arising. And, well, we all know, because we're going to come round to this in, in the links of dependent origination, that the Buddha's proximate cause for the upholding or the arising of dukkha is tanha. You know, and this is a word which we'll speak quite a bit about, but all I want to say really very briefly about this at this stage is that the word tanha in Pali possesses enormous pathos about the human condition, which you just simply don't get in the word craving when we translate it into English. You know, this, if, this, if this is a, a description of the human condition, that it is dominated, absolutely pervaded by tanha, it's pretty sad. Yeah. It's a pretty sad condition to be in. Now, I don't want to make you miserable by saying that, <laughs> but I just want to point that out because we don't capture that in the English whatsoever uh, when, we, when we translate it as craving or desire which is often another alternative translation for this. Something else which I didn't say yesterday, and I also want to say today, the model that I'm working with here on dependent origination is very much of 12 links all occurring in one moment. Now, I say that because many of you will know the more classic Theravadin um, description of dependent origination as being spread over three lifetimes. Yeah, this is Buddha Gosa's model that you'll find in the Visuddhimagga. Yeah, this has, for example, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, who's my, probably one of my few Theravadin heroes, actually saying that actually Buddha Gosa, in saying it's spread over three lifetimes, is basically a closet Hindu. You know, he just can't throw off the idea of something being passed around through different lifetimes rather than this as being a dynamic description of the way everything is occurring in the moment. Now, I'm one of these sad people that toy around with Pali translations at times and uh, spend hours thinking about possible ways of translating terms. Um, although dependent origination is very accurate as a term, it sometimes, sometimes, it sometimes it fails to capture what's going on. And one, I don't use it, but I just want to share it with you because I think it's, it's quite useful. 
One possible way of translating it would be situational patterning. Every, the way every situation and every moment is patterned. You know? So actually things take up a particular patterning in your life, moment to moment, if something is not done by, about it. Because it, in a sense, there is always something carrying over into the next moment. We started looking at this yesterday by thinking of confusion, avidya. You know, this term that was written up on the board, avidya. Um, avidya is, well, the word vidya, where's one of my pens? The word vidya is actually related to, well, this is the Pali, and this is the Sanskrit, vidya. And actually, both of them derive from that word, the word Veda, which means knowledge. So literally, the word avidya, when we prefix it like this, means non-knowledge, what we don't possess. And I was suggesting to you yesterday, however, that it's not simply about lack of the requisite information. And I was suggesting also yesterday that you probably have sat here and listened to numerous Dharma talks. Actually, you should all be awakened by now. (laughs) You've got all the knowledge. (laughs) So, in a way, we're not talking about, are we, the collecting of some kind of information and knowledge that we supposedly need. We have the knowledge, but we still, still don't do anything about it. This is the situation. So, again, just reminding you, because you know, before we move on, that I was saying that this is to do with actually the other dimension of this term, vidya and avidya, is not not knowing, but not wanting to know. Yeah. And I mean that on a very fundamental existential level. Yeah. It's pretty painful, a lot of what's being spoken about. You know, that fact that you know, that existence is characterized by impermanence, dukkha, and not self. That is what existence is characterized. I don't, and I said this yesterday, it doesn't get any better than that. (laughs) 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 You know, how much wishful thinking we might have, it simply doesn't get any better. There is impermanence, you know. Impermanence is written into that warp and woof of life. It's there. It's there in our fleeting moments of our you know, kind of the evanescence of our mental processes um, to the world around us that we see changing, both you know, sort of so, you know, sociologically, economically, politically, you know, and the world itself is changing. There is nothing that is remaining the same. It is painful. You know? it's, in other words, it's dukkha. And I was suggesting that the part of it yesterday was that actually, because the world is this way, it's structurally incapable of ever providing you with ultimate satisfaction. If you're looking externally for the world to produce and to provide you with a sense of security, certainty, and satisfaction, you're onto a bit of a loser. <laughs> it simply ain't going to happen. Yeah. So, 
what the Buddha is really in very much in particular in the early text is suggesting that this has to come from within. Instead of looking without to provide you with the certainties and the satisfactions, the only certainties and satisfactions can come from the way that, in the sense, we process the material. What comes to us, however it comes to us, be that painful instances or joyful instances. In other words, we learn not to get into this reactive patterning of simply pushing away what we don't like and trying to grasp hold of what we like and stabilize it and make it certain. So we live, but I'm going to use deliberately this term today, and I didn't use it very so much yesterday, Uh, we live with some degree of wisdom in this world, knowing that actually whether it is aversive, or whether the state is aversion and unpleasantness, or even whether it's pleasant, it will change. Yeah? It will change. And again, I will say to you, this is not to make you miserable. It's just to, in a sense, to bring you into the realism of the way things are. Yeah? Now, if we don't live with that realism, we're always chasing chimeras. We're always chasing illusions. We're always chasing phantoms which are simply not going to be there. Now, and I think perhaps I ought to say this at this stage, because again, it it connects in many ways with the title. What I think that religious traditions have done, including the traditions that have grown up on the back of the Buddha's original teaching, is they seek to provide you with a degree of consolation, a degree of certainties. I don't think the Buddha's doing that. I don't think the Buddha is into cheap certainties. He's not into cheap consolations. Just to remind you of those final words which I said that the Buddha quoted in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Absolutely all phenomena are impermanent. Now get on with it. This is basically what he's saying. (laughs) Because that is the reality of the situation. That is what we have to deal with in our daily lives. This is... The certainties, if you like, the certainties are of old age, sickness, and death. Those are the certainties, if you want them. You know, Tibetans, I always used to, when I lived in Tibetan society, they always used to, make a, they always used to be um, saying this in Tibetan society. There is one thing absolutely certain, death. <laughs> one thing that's absolutely uncertain, when. And then they'd usually fall around laughing. <laughs> 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 so it doesn't have to make you po-faced about this at all or deathly serious about it but it's taking on board that those are the realities you know? the only peace, tranquility, happiness contentment that we can find is something that's generated from within not from without you know, when we live our world from within, but we're connected with others, and this, in a sense, is going to be the theme of what I want to talk about tomorrow, with metta, as boundless friendliness, then, then we can find and we can seek for the tranquility that we don't find when we externalize and always look for others and for circumstances to make you happy or content. If you really want to know what the death knell of a relationship is, you do, don't you? <laughs> so you're supposed to say yes. 
<laughs> if you want to know what the death knell of a relationship is, in a sense, make me happy. <laughs> That's like giving somebody an impossible task, an impossible burden. Yeah. Happiness can be generated out, or contentment can be generated out of a relationship, but it's not by the demand of making somebody the, you know, the cause of your happiness. Yeah. And that, in a sense, kills or stultifies relationship. There's another instance of Mara, the killer, coming in. Yeah. So these are kind of background remarks to get us back in. So we have an awful lot of knowledge. I often feel, apart from a lot of technical material that I present in, in you know, talks like this, that I'm not telling you something you don't know. I'm not really telling you something you don't know. What we don't know, in a sense, is how to practice it. That's the key to it, of actually how to practice it. And this is a pragmatic path. The Buddha is not doing this out of intellectual curiosity. I really make that point. There is nothing I have ever discerned in the Pali Canon which is there for merely intellectual curiosity. Yeah. It's there because it's a practical teaching. Yeah. Something that we can live, something that can actually change our lives. I mean, I was often saying in the UK to my students in the UK, actually, this practice ought to come with a government health warning. <laughs> this practice could severely change your life. <laughs> Yeah, and it's meant to. That's exactly what it's meant to. It could actually change your life. Uh, but it takes time and it takes patience. Um, and it takes the ability to open to often the painful in life. Yeah. Now, the painful is going to come to us anyway. You know, we can live in houses constructed on sand, but at some point in time, the walls are going to fall down. You know, no matter how much the how solid the edifice you think is, it's going to fall down because it's based on something which is not solid. It's not secure, and so we can attempt to put at bay the painful in life, but it will always erupt through at some point. Um, often, unfortunately, in things like tragedy in our lives, loss of a loved one, yeah. this can disrupt whole lives. Now, in a way, what we're doing is trying to understand how we can deal even with those most painful situations which will come to us without turning it into what I call sangsaric hell. Yeah. Because that's what it can become so easily. Yeah. Now, that'll, we'll see that later in the chain because that's to do with craving and grasping. This is craving and grasping and holding on in a particular way. So we start, this is, this is the background, this is the floor, this is the carpet to your experience, avidya, confusion, trying to make sense of the world. Yeah. Now, as I was saying yesterday, and I do really, really want to emphasize this because I think it's such an important point. Unfor I mean, unfortunately, in the West, we live with guilt so much of the time. Yeah. Guilt is a huge part. So when we start to say, actually, well, the precursor of all this and the reason why you're in this state, in a sense, is, let's take the most pejorative way of translating this term of vidya, ignorance, then somehow it's your fault. No, it isn't. Yeah. It's not your fault. Unfortunately, our conditioning doesn't give us the tools often to be able to cope with life. So we go through life trying to do our best, trying to cope with things as they arise, 
but not having the full tools or the full range of skills, perhaps that's a better word, the full range of skills to be able to deal with things. So I tend to use the word confusion. Confusion often isn't under your control. You know? So let's take the pejorative sting out of this altogether. And I might just say that, but something about that word guilt. This is a particular Judaic Christo thought, the notion of guilt. You will not find one Asian language other than when they've translated guilt into an Asian language or try to make it up in some way. You certainly won't find it in any of the canonical languages of Buddhism. You won't find a word for guilt. You'll find words for shame, but you won't find words for guilt. And there's a big difference between the two. So, this is, in a sense, our starting place, but it isn't a starting place because it isn't the first cause. It's the background to our experience, is avidya. This is the most deeply rooted, um, problematic aspect of our experience, which, in some senses, can only be eradicated when we deal with the most proximate causes, its most proximate manifestations in our ordinary life which we'll see as we come later around the, the links, the dependent links, as they manifest. Now, according to the dependencies, the chain of dependencies, what is arising next is the sankharas. And, I, and this is where we finished off yesterday, on the sankharas. The sankharas are, of course, the formations, the volitional formations, These are, as I was saying, I'm not going to go into too much more detail about these, but these are being formed, you know, something we're actively engaging, engaging in through acts of intention and acts of will. Now, I didn't mention this yesterday, but they are being formed by chetana, by intention. Yeah. So, in many ways, a lot of our practice is about beginning to discern, and this is not always easy, what our intentions are. Yeah. Some of those intentions will be, using a kind of more Freudian language, unconscious. We, and they're not immediately perspicable. We don't immediately have access into what our intentions are. So we're uncovering our intentions behind our actions. Now, the moment we get into talking about intention, we, get, <laughs> we open ourselves up to the minefield of what I call karma. <laughs> and I say minefield because this is one of the most misinterpreted words. I'll put the uh, Sanskrit first because this is the word that we normally use. The Pali is the second version. Karma. Well, I mean, I say it's the most misinterpreted word. It's a very simple word in Pali and Sanskrit. It simply means action. That's all it means. Yet when you think of the layers of metaphysics that get laid on this term, um, particularly in Hinduism, where it becomes a fatalistic notion and within a lot of, of the cruder forms of Hinduism, not within all forms, um, where it becomes something which you cannot do anything about. You know? And I, having lived in India quite a number of years, I hear people going, it's my karma. And that's passed into our language too, hasn't it? 
You know, it's very much passed into it. It basically means I can't do anything about it. It's my karma. <laughs> yeah. you know, end of story, almost. Um, now, that's not the Buddha's notion of karma. In fact, the proper way of looking at this, and this is where it's much more detailed out, is what's known as karma vipaka, or karma vipaka. Um, let me write this other term. Now, that's very simply, if you take this literally, action and consequence. So, or action and fruit, because there's another word that's used as well, which is pala. The fruit of a, an action. Now, the Buddha, living in the time he did, as I was suggesting and kind of sharing with you yesterday, lived in a very agrarian society. Um, so he often used the word pala, things fruit. And just if you've got an orchard of all different kinds of trees, you know, some peach trees, some apricots, some apple trees, some pear trees, they all have different times of fruiting. Yeah, and if they're young trees, they might not fruit for a considerable amount of time. Yeah. Whereas if they're older trees, they might fruit quite quickly. Yeah, but they're all fruiting at different times. And this is the kind of model he's using for how actually actions produce consequences. They have different fruiting times yeah. in our lives. Some of them, for example, do not catch up with us until many, many, many years later. I'm not even going to even talk about lifetimes models here. Because you know, I don't think that's what's intended at all. You know, you're talking about you know, the fruits of your actions. Some of them will catch up with you immediately, and some of them will catch up with you many years later. You know, that is the model it's doing. And the Buddha is basically saying, Actually, we live in this world creating sankharas because we can't avoid acting. Even if I don't act, that's an act. Yeah. In Western philosophical theory, we have something called uh, the doctrine of acts and omissions. So omitting to act is also an act. <laughs> yeah. So here we live in this world where we can't help but act. Now, we're in the world, we're not sitting up in caves in the Himalaya, but even sitting up in a cave in the Himalaya is an action, which will have consequences, and will have fruits to it. We live in this world, which has consequences, and it has fruits, which are related to our actions of thought, word, and deed. Yeah. Body, speech, and mind is the classic formulation of this in most forms of Buddhism. Yeah. So we're acting, body, speech, mind but the intentions are generated in the mind. Now, here's an interesting thing. The Buddha is also saying, try to, if you will like, clean up your intentions, but, but don't be attached to the fruit of them. Yeah. It's very interesting, because often, if we think we have a good intention, you want to see it fulfilled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you give that present to somebody, you want them to go, oh, I really like that. <laughs> you know? Or if you do a good deed for somebody, you really expect them perhaps to be grateful for it. In other words, you're looking for a consequence. You're looking for a particular fruit. Now, those are very simple examples. But actually, the world we live in is a complex nexus of causes. 
and conditions. So even if we have the best intention, it always, no, won't always give rise to the fruit that we may want. You know, um, often good intentions end up with not the consequences we want here. But, if you like, what we're talking about in terms of the karma or the vipaka, the real consequence is in relationship to your mind. That's the real consequence about it. It's not just attached to what occurs because of the action. So if your intention is clean, if your intention is wholesome, then it has a positive effect on the mind. So it's not about actually getting everything you want through, oh, my intentions are really good and I'm really doing my best here, but I'm still not getting the results. Actually, the results are in the mind, not in the external situations, because the external, external situations are often so complex that they, you don't get necessarily the consequence that you wish for. Now, that's a long way of coming back to talking about sankharas because we're actually engaged in this stuff all the time. You know, we're actually engaged in it every moment. You know, our intentions are there rapidly. You know, very important part of just doing sitting practice. You know, good place to start is actually examining your intentions. What's your intention behind your practice? Does actually, I, when I briefly led that meditation in the morning and gave you a few instructions, does your intention coincide with your bodily posture? You know? For example, if I'm meditating and my posture is like this, does that actually coincide with the intention to stay awake and alert, attentive to what is happening? It doesn't. So actually we embody intentions as well. So intention is a bodily thing, it's not just something going on in the mind, but it's reflected in the body itself. Yeah. I guess I need a bike. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, um, would you say that the ultimate goal of Vipassana practice is to discern the links of dependent origination experientially. That's part of it. It's not the totality of it. Part of it is in understanding, in understanding dependent origination, you understand, as I say, the mess, but you also begin to understand the way of getting out of that mess. Ultimately, of course, and this is something I was referring to yesterday, the goal, I think, of the meditation practices that we engage in, as far as I can discern out of the early text, is very much the attainment of upeka, the attainment of poise, balance, and equanimity in this life. You know, that is, in a sense, the nibbanaing experience, you know, to have this poise and balance in life, you know, to have a degree of responsiveness you know, or total responsiveness as opposed to reactiveness in life. Now, I say that because I think all too often the way the tradition reads things like Nibbana and the goal of Vipassana practice, we have big words that get attached to it, and particularly when they're mistranslated. 
You know, for example, we have um, this word panya in Pali, which is usually translated as wisdom. This is the goal of all practice, is to at- the attainment of panya, the attainment of wisdom. Well, it's a bad translation. The, the goal, if we even see it in terms of panya, is the goal of understanding, the goal of insight. Now, the insight is into the three characteristics of existence. You know, that's part of the insight. But having insight into three characters of existence, characteristics of existence is also meant to lead to equanimity. You know, because that's the insightful way of living with a really understanding of this. You know, that's, the, that's my phrase, the getting on with it. You know, strive on diligently is the actual um, you know, more polite way of putting it. But it's really how do you live with that understanding? Now, normally in our ordinary, average, everyday lives, we don't live with that understanding because we're trying to avoid those facets of things. We actually don't want to know. This is part of the avidya again. We don't want to know about the impermanence, really. We don't want to know um, about this lack of any fixed self within. And we certainly don't want to know about dukkha. You know, dukkha is a very unpleasant facet of reality. So it's in the sense of understanding those and really beginning to have insight into those, how do I then live with them? And that's the insight that generates upekka, that generates, well, not just upekka, it actually generates all the brahmaviharas. You know? it, generates, it generates the ground or the soil of metta. You know? Now, in the traditions, um, and I'll say much more about this for those who come tomorrow, metta has been sidelined. It's kind of a, it's a subsidiary practice. I see it as being much more central to what the Buddha is actually teaching. In fact, I think any practice without metta involved in it in some way is actually extremely cold. You know, it's, it's, simply, um, it's simply tied into an ideal of wisdom. Yeah, and it's a kind of cold, almost slightly brutal wisdom at that. So there's a softness and gentleness that comes with the development of metta. And that is part of it as well, because metta is, in a sense, remember, I don't translate it as loving kindness, I translate it as boundless friendliness. Yeah, a boundless friendliness. Well, if it's boundless, it spreads out. Yeah, literally, the we, one of the etymologies of the word metta means to get fat. It means to grow fat. It means to grow fat with friendliness. <laughs> you know, and those are activities. And so when we say the goal, the goal of understanding all of this, the goal of understanding this is really some of those things I've just mentioned as well. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a big project in a way, rather than just a, a simple one. The nibbana experience includes all of those things, but it also includes primarily, of course, the cessation of greed, aversion, and delusion, or, or infatuation, um, aversion, and confusion. If you put it in a much more way, I think, which is really much more how we experience those things. But, sorry, long, long answer, short question again. <laughs> sorry, you wanted to ask confused understanding of dependent origination. Yeah. Oh. Yes, it is. Can you hear me now? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Oh, um, so you're talking about understanding impermanence and uh, what uh, confusion, not self. I can, but also then you're you're saying you also need to experience those at a, at a profound level. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they remain intellectual. Yep. But I can experience, say, impermanence, and somehow, um, maybe subtly or not so subtly, thwart that and decide, well, uh, <clears throat> my nose at it in some way and go for something that will cause suffering um, um, anyway. And so it's, I'm wondering if then, if not the ultimate, but one step is experiencing the suffering that that's the, 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 the ultimate not wanting to know is not wanting to know that I'm suffering yeah. because of it. And then the meta comes into that too because uh, if I can really get suffering, <clears throat> then I can get that you are suffering too. Yeah, that's very much what it's about. <clears throat> it's very much, I mean, I'll explore this a lot more tomorrow, but that's very much what it's about because it's... Um, Actually, jumping ahead into kind of Mahayana Buddhism, I mean, there's this figure within Mahayana Buddhism called Shantideva. And some of you might know his famous text, the Bodhicharya Avatara. In this particular text, he's saying this is exactly what it's about. It's beginning to gain empathy with others. So in one particular passage in it, he says it makes no sense to talk about my dukkha or your dukkha, but only about dukkha. Yeah. So we take the personal out of it, stop personalizing it. One of the aspects, and we have such a short time over these few days, but one of the other aspects of this is actually everything that occurs to us, we take so personally. Have you noticed that? You know, we personalize everything. It's almost like any suffering that occurs, why have I been picked out? <laughs> you know... I mean, the, the alternative to that is, why not? <laughs> you know, but we take it so, so personally, every event that occurs to us. And then that becomes um, something that we then proliferate or obsess around, you know, once we've taken it personally. Once we've added, in a sense, the first-person pronoun into our experience, that's become really personal. If I can see this actually as a lot of this as an impersonal process, yeah, as an impersonal process, then I am not affected. Yeah. I start to add I, what I call the royal I-ness, <laughs> into this at quite an early stage. Yet, as we go through the links, we'll see that the links in this a pretty impersonal up to a point, and then it becomes personal. You know, now, we haven't got there yet, but I'll, I'll get there as we move on yeah, about this. But yes, this movement out into meta, I think, is an absolutely fundamental movement in the process of this. Because actually, this is why I say once we even begin to understand tantra, once we begin to understand the pathos behind the way that we generate pain and further confusion for ourselves, then what can that lead to? Simply friendliness towards it, you know, kindness towards it, gentleness towards it, rather than the kind of castigation that we put ourselves through a lot of the time about it. 
Now, none of this, and I, and, and I go back slightly off your question, but none of this is meant to lead you into a position of saying it's my fault. Yeah. Or, you know, um, beating yourself up even further yeah. about it. Because that's not what it's about. It's actually owning up, initially, to our dukkha. That's what it is. Because the only place we can start with is our dukkha, the way that we pattern things at this moment. And this gives us a clue to that patterning. We own up, literally, to who we are, which includes all of the kind of the foibles and the things that we do and the unhappinesses, but the happinesses, too, within our lives. So it begins to become a full appreciation and acknowledgement of where you are in order to move in some direction. Now, unless you do that, unless there's this kind of owning up process, this acknowledgement process, there can't be that movement. Because it's not held with kindness. And actually, I mean, one of the things that struck me, I know we're slightly off the point here, but I think it's important to say, one of the things that struck most Eastern teachers about coming to the West, and those who have been, been brought up in the West and educated in the West and everything, is just how tough we are on ourselves. Yeah. How cruel we can become to ourselves. Now, in Eastern traditions, for example, when I was doing metta practice in Sri Lanka, um, metta practice for yourself was actually fairly small, because most Sri Lankans don't actually have a problem with themselves. <laughs> You know, and in same in Tibetan communities. I mean, the amount of Tibetans were always telling me how good they were at things. <laughs> they, were n- they never had a problem with kind of owning up to you know, how they were. Um, but in our societies, we're not like that. We have this kind of big guilt, ways of beating ourselves up. And actually, sometimes the practice itself can be another way of beating ourselves up. Yeah. Of not being perfect at this as well. So I think it's important to say that because often we do, um, <laughs> a Sri Lankan meditation friend of mine once said, he said, well, yeah, when Western people get meditation, they make their lives even more miserable. <laughs> <laughs> Simply because you try to strive for a perfection which isn't really based on an understanding of how you operate, what's actually going on now for you. And so this is that and this understanding, together with coupled with uh, metta, you know, helps to soften the kind of more, I would say, more realistic, quite painful elements that you see when you begin to look at this operating within yourself. When you begin to see Paticca Samuppada operating within yourself, we need to see dependent origination there. Yeah. Now, let's get back to Sankaras, because I know I'm going to not get finished, otherwise you'll be left with wanting to know who did it. (laughs) So, the sankharas, so karma is, and vipaka are actively involved in sankharas. You know, fruits. Now, doing things often enough will produce, if you like, as as I said yesterday, basically roots that your mind will run down. You know, ways of dealing with problems, ways of being with people, 
You know, these are sankharas. They're also narratives about who you are. Yeah. It's almost as if you believe that the sankharas are you. All of these dispositions, these things that you've built up over the years, your particular proclivities and ways of dealing with phenomena as they arise and situations as they arise, you believe that they, uh, they are you. And you tend to attach yourself to this understanding that they are this, you, know, the, you are this particular type of person. Yeah. It becomes deeply ingrained, doesn't it? Yeah, and you've only got to think of this, for example, in one translation I suggested yesterday of this, making it slightly banal, is actually habits. Now, if you want to know how much habits are so much considered to be part of our identity, I don't know if you've had this experience, when somebody challenges one of them. Don't you feel hurt? Yeah. When somebody challenges you, somebody said to you, you've got this rather irritating habit, you know, of doing this. And you go, well, that's me. That's the way I am. <laughs> you get very defensive. The moment you see that, you see how identified we are with the habitual formations that we've built up for ourselves over the course of our lifetime. If you want to go into traditional, into traditional kind of more Theravadan Buddhist view, but that's over lifetimes. But yeah, it makes sense to talk it over this lifetime. You've spent the whole of your lifetime building up habits, ways of dealing with things. Yeah. This is part of the reason why that we get the same stuff repeating in very similar patterns again and again and again because we're dealing with them pretty well in the same way. The other way of seeing Sankara is it's not the way the Buddha necessarily talks about it, but it's implied in the way that um, it's detailed out, certainly in Abhidharma material, is that these are kind of narrative structures that we inhabit as well. You know, they are the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. Yeah. Now, <laughs> in one particular, I mentioned this novelist yesterday to some of you, uh, who were here, which is this novelist Jeanette Winterson. There's a particular book that she wrote, some of you might have even read, it's called The Passion. And it's a magical realist novel. And in this book, and all these strange things are happening, like people walking on water and doing all sorts of weird stuff. But every time something weird happens, there's this little refrain that runs through. It says, trust me, I'm telling you stories. <laughs> Jeanette Winterson. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I almost feel this is about the Sankaras. The Sankaras are going to, trust me, I'm telling you stories. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm kind of psychologizing it in a certain way here, which isn't necessarily within the text. But that's what's implied by this. These are patterns that we identify with and we identify them because they're telling us stories that we've inhabited for long times, for long periods of time, that we think this is who we are. And the most immediate, let me get rid of some of this, relationship that Sankaras have is with the next link in the chain. So, one, two, three. So, this is your third link in the chain Vijnana, cognizance. Consciousness and thinking. Well, what's the thinking going on? Well, the thinking that's going on is because it's in direct relationship with the sankharas. 
You know, remember that the image that's being used here in dependent origination is of dependency. Not that this is causing that, but these two things exist in a relationship of dependency. You know, the one depends on the other. So most of these point in both directions. It's not as if you can say, well, this is occurring, then this is occurring, then this is occurring. You know, these are absolutely dynamically interlinked. This is a process, it's not a linear kind of march from avidya all the way to jaramarana, which is old age and death. Yeah. These are all intricately interlinked and creating chains of dependencies, wasn't it? None more so in the relationship between sankhara and vijnana, between consciousness or cognizance and what is going on in thought here. Now, in our experience, you can't divorce the two. You cannot divorce consciousness from what you're thinking about or what you're aware of. You know, that's the intimate relationship between the two. Yeah. So much so that one of the early discoveries of the Buddha was that all consciousness, all consciousness is what he calls intentional. And this is not the way I was using it earlier on. It's very much a philosophical way of using it. All consciousness has an object. There is never consciousness without an object. Now, again, um, without, you know, with the risk of boring you, this is partly in relationship to what was going on in Indian culture at the time. Because the, the composers of the Upanishads were always talking about pure consciousness. Yeah. They talked about Atman as being pure consciousness, or... Um, Brahman as being pure consciousness. This is one of the things that I spoke about. The Buddha is saying there is no consciousness without being conscious of. Isn't there a text in the, in the canon where um, the Buddha asks the bhikkhus that he uses the simile of light falling on the floor and he says, well, if there's no floor... And the, and the light didn't fall on anything. And he said, there's also a type of consciousness that does not fall on anything. Then at the end he says, that type of consciousness is without dukkha. Yeah, as far as I remember, that's only, there's only one citation of that in the whole yeah, of the canon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, which tends to make me think it's, a, again, an interpolation. Yeah. Well, uh, Something has been inserted in the canon. Now, I haven't talked about this so far. Um, but something I think that goes on in the history of the formation of the canon, because remember it doesn't all come together at once, is that you start to get Brahmanical remains start to be placed into the canon again. And that's not accidental, simply because a lot of the early converts of Buddhist were, Buddhism were Brahmins itself. And so my response to a passage like that is not to desperately trying to make sense of it in comparison with all the texts that are saying actually every form of consciousness has an object is actually probably to see it as an anomaly that's being inserted at some point into the canon. Yeah. Now, yeah, without going into lots of textual examination of it, I, you know, I couldn't give you a direct answer about that, but I do think it's an anomaly uh, within the canon. Yeah. Yet, and I will say this, many traditions, particularly later than the early texts, will go down exactly that route. Exactly that route. I mean, when you've got these traditions, for example, some of the Zen traditions, 
and some of the um, particular Tibetan traditions like Dzogchen and Mahamudra, all of these are talking about pristine forms of consciousness with no object. Yeah. So they're coming out very, very similar. E- even Yogacara, Chittamatra schools, which are very influential in China and the development of Zen, are all talking about that. But that's a much later development. This is why I think this is more radical. Why I think these early texts are much more radical than the later traditions. Yeah. So a kind of response to your question rather than a direct answer. Yeah. Um, I had a conversation with a, another Pali scholar a long time ago about the origins of that word, vijnana, mm-hmm. and it, it, I've been playing with it, that we is like something about separating or yeah, something the, like the that? Yeah, the divided knowing. Yeah, basically. so it's sort of like, is it sort of, would it be unfair to understand it as sort of the act or the mind of picking out something? Yeah, it is, exactly that. Okay. I mean, there's oh, a bit of Pali for you. Anything that has that formulation in it, anything that has that formulation, Janya, uh, panya, yeah, sanya, all to do with knowing. Anything you see with that formulation in Pali is always to do with knowing. This is the divisive bit. That is dividing it simply up into consciousness and an object. So when we're conscious of something, we're conscious of an object. So our sense is too, there's a kind of diversive aspect to it. Are you saying the, the we is the consciousness part or the... Or, uh, it, you can't do it as simply that, as that. Okay. You can't do it as simply and as that. And what's the root meaning of that we as it occurs elsewhere? Well, it's, a negative, it's, it's actually a dividing. It's, mm-hmm. actually do, it's saying there is a dividing of consciousness between an object and the consciousness mm-hmm. itself that perceives the object. I see. Yeah, that's really what it's saying. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's what I... Yeah. yeah. And, and you can't say anything other than simply... I mean, the simple, 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 most simple way of putting this is that consciousness is always a consciousness of. Yeah. So it's like saying, I can't, well, well, if I'm conscious, can I actually be conscious without being conscious of something, even that I'm conscious? <laughs> you know, itself. So it's always reflexive. There's always a f- reflexive a movement within it here. And this actually is quite remarkable. I don't know how much you know about the history of um, philosophy in general, but this thought, which is there in the early Nikayas, that consciousness is always consciousness of, in Western philosophical thinking, this doesn't actually even get on the agenda till the late 19th century. It's that far after, say nearly 2,400 years after the Buddha's death. And there's somebody called Franz Brantano, Franz Brantano, um, and through his work with his disciple Edmund Husserl, they founded a whole movement of phenomenology, which was exactly about this. You know, consciousness and its acts, you know, and the objects that it had within it. You know. But it's quite remarkable that the Buddha already had discerned this at such an early period. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions. One is, how early in Buddhism... Uh, does the Pali canon get so vast, and how early in Buddhism does it develop into these many different schools of thought? <laughs> That's a big question. I mean, if you don't mind a simple answer, I can. Uh, I, I'd like a simple answer. Yeah. Okay, but it's a vast, it's a vast question. Um, 
Well, as we know, I mean, I'd, I, was, I had thought about trying to get a photocopy for you, but there is, I mean, I divided a little thing in showing you how the Buddhist schools... Well, themselves. it might help you if I tell you why I'm asking. Okay, because, tell me because why it's, um, It used to be believed until about 50 years ago that early Christianity had fairly uniform ideas when it was mm. a small movement, and now that consensus has changed. Now mm. it's widely believed that early Christianity, even in the first century, had many, many diverse schools of thought, with uh, each one with slightly different uh, sets of holy books and something, so that's been a big shift. So I'm curious what the comparable... Okay, let's, let's give you the very simple answer. I won't go into the technicalities of what's going on. Basically, what, what happens is you get a number of councils. Um, the only thing all the traditions agree, can agree upon that there were such councils that occurred after the Buddha's death. The first one occurred almost immediately after the Buddha's death. Um, the second one, about 100 years later. And at that point, you get the splitting of the Sangha. Uh, you get a schism occurring, um, but not a schism on doctrine, a schism on vinaya, on the discipline. Now, strictly speaking, that's the only way schism can occur in Buddhist groups. Is it can't occur on matters of doctrine because it's not supposed to be orthodox. Here, so basically, it was very pragmatic. It was about you know whether can I live with you if you've got a different set of rules to me. You know, for example, one group might say, "Well, we're not going to eat after lunch," and the other group would say, "Hey, I want an evening meal." <laughs> you know, and it was literally as practical as that. And this is why you got the first split within the within the um, within the schools. And this is the split between what's called the Mahasangika, which is literally means the big sangha and the Astiravada, which is the precursor of what becomes the Theravada in Sri Lanka um, at this particular point. Now, the Astiravada were a bit po-faced and wanted to really, really hold to minute points of doctrine and minute points of vinaya, very close, particularly the vinaya, very closely. And so they split off from the main Sangha. And then after that, almost like, an, you know, like cellular splitting, there started to occur many, many splits on vinaya within the, within the um, schools. So by approximately 300 years after the Buddha's death, you're talking about a minimum of 18 schools. Okay. And this correlates with the great expansion of the Pali Canon as a collection? Uh, the Pali Canon was probably the, probably the formation of the Pali Canon, as far as we understand it from a scholarly point of view, started within the Buddha's lifetime, including the formation of the Abhidhamma as well. They all started in the Buddha's lifetime, basically remembering and memorizing what was being said. Um, the canon itself probably isn't closed even after it's written down until into the early eras of the Christian eras. Yeah. And finally, you said yesterday that there was also, in addition to the emphasis of joy, there's an emphasis in Buddhism on joy, and you said it's one of the seven signs of something? Well, it's one of the seven factors of awakening. Seven factors, and that's part of the original Buddha. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's all. Thank you. <laughs> it's a good note to finish on, that one. <laughs> that there is joy within the canon. <laughs> what do you mean? The, what's the, is there PT? PT? No, no. The, oh, this, is, this is, yes. Within the seven factors of awakening, it's PT, yes, but not as it's associated within the jhana factors. It's not the same PT. It, 
No, it's not Samanasa, it's not Domanasa. It's, um, it's very different because it has a different connotation. It's that which is, if you like, the energy within the process that's required for awakening to occur. And so it's a joyful nature that arises, but together with things like tranquility and mindfulness and all of these other factors that are there. Yeah. So it's, the reason I'm trying to say that because it's almost it's very emphasized in jhana practice, the development of PT as, a, as being a product of the second jhana and everything else, together with sukha, which is coming later. And these are viewed quite differently. Now, I don't think that's what the Buddha's talking about when he's talking about it as being part of the seven factors of awakening. He's talking about something, I think, far, far more fundamental and not associated simply with jhana states. With it. It's PT. It's the same word, but it's PT has a number of different meanings. Yeah. Yeah. This is very quick. Yeah. And then we must move on because otherwise we're going to get bogged down. You're saying the radical uh, of the Buddha is that no consciousness cannot have, and it doesn't arise without an object. That's right. And yet. I've been fooled to think that you can have awareness of awareness, consciousness of consciousness, and therefore that's more of a higher practice. But that's, uh, I mean, I've fooled myself. I did. These get, into, these get into meditative states, which I don't think really the Buddha is talking about as being liberative states. Yeah, that's really what I think, you know, from the, my reading of the canon, I do emphasize it's my reading of the uh, particular way I read the canon is that when the Buddha is talking about having genuine insight, their insights to what is arising when consciousness and the world arises together. Now, consciousness doesn't rise alone. You know, this gets much more detailed in terms of Abhidhamma. When we talk about mind as such, we're actually talking about chitta and chittasakas. What we're talking is mind and mental factors or, or consciousness and mental factors always arising together. And these are what color the world. Now, in every moment of perception, there's a minimum of seven different chatasikas arising with every moment of perception. So there's seven minimal mental factors arising. Then there are all the wholesome and unwholesome factors that also arise with it, which color what we see as the object. So it's actually quite a complex picture that's going on here. And, and the Abhidhamma goes into a lot of detail. I'm not, not going to speak about it, but the Abhidhamma goes into a lot of detail about this. Um, but actually is an aid to meditation, not merely as an intellectual tool. It's an aid to meditation, of actually beginning to discern what goes along. I think from our point of view, I, I don't usually like Buddha Gosa, but I actually like this particular phrase of him. Um, he says, you know, you have to see that consciousness is like a king. He never, uh, like a king, it never arrives without a huge retinue. <laughs> yeah. It always comes with an enormous retinue of other stuff there. So this is what's going on in Vijnana as well, because Vijnana and Chitta, these are kind of synonymous. You know, it's arising with a whole load of stuff, the Sankaras. Well, actually, what I'm referring to as mental factors are actually Sankaras. Yeah. These are, you know, all the wholesome and unwholesome factors that we bring to experience and create the narrative structures that we live within. And this is occurring again and again and again and again. And it's discerning that process. 
beginning to discern that process. Does it have a life of its own? Well, I think you can see that. I mean, I've, in, in kind of work I do in Oxford, I mean, when we talk about mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, one of the things we say to clients is, suddenly you find that your mind has got a mind of its own. You know, because that's exactly... And this is just a common meditation thing, isn't it? When we're doing meditation, when you try to focus on your breath, well, your mind doesn't want to know about that. It goes off and does something else. It goes off and plays <laughs> with something else. You know, breath, that's boring. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah. It'll go off and do something else. So you suddenly find that your mind isn't as much under your control as you think it is. You'd think it would be a really easy thing. Well, just focus on this. No way wants to go and often do something else. Yeah. So it is actually not under our control. So what we're learning to do in a lot of the early stages is, is develop a degree of control. This is why the image is often used is of, of training an elephant. You know? And what they do is they, when they train an elephant, they still do this in Sri Lanka, is they tie it to a peg in the ground. And what does the elephant do? It pulls and it tugs and it tries to pull the post out of the ground and run away and do all the sorts of things... That's a really good metaphor for the mind. You know, and eventually it gets to the point that it can't run away and it settles down. Now you can start to train the elephant. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's quite a good image, that, that particular image. Um, but in the early stages, what you're finding is it's, it's not really under your control. Any sense of control is quite spurious a lot of the time. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to move on, because otherwise we, you won't find out who did it. <laughs> So, vinyana. Well, vinyana itself, of course, isn't just arising on its own. It's dependent on nama rupa. And herein lies the crux, I think, of why we have a three-lifetime interpretation of Buddhaghosa. It's in this, this particular link Literally, Namarupa means name and form. I mean, that's about as good as it gets when it comes to nearness of Pali, Sanskrit, and English. Yeah, Nama is name. <laughs> and Rupa is form. And what it really stands for is mental and physical processes. This is what it stands for. So Nama is the mental processes, and Rupa is the physical processes here. So Nama will include Sanya as well. It's worth pointing that out. Sanya being, you remember when I did the aggregates with you yesterday? Sanya being the discriminative perceptive aggregate that's there. Now, <clears throat> Buddhaghosa, I think, and this is why I say it's actually better looking at the early text rather than through Buddhaghosa. Buddhaghosa suddenly sees this as being the generation of actual physical body and mind at this stage, coming into existence. Now, if you're talking about this as being, as I am, and Buddha Dasa and lots of lots of other people speak about this as being a one-lifetime pro process rather than a two-lifetime process, unless you really look deeply and find out what's really going on in Nama Rupa, we've got a problem because we've got two bodies being born. One born at link 11. No, sorry, link... Uh, yes, at link 11. And then the other being born at link four. And so the only way of doing that is to say, well, actually, everything that occurs before that is past. 
Everything that occurs from 3 to 10 as a link is present, and everything from 11 to 12 is future. Yeah. Did people follow that? You've got three lifetimes there as a way of trying to account for the fact that you seem to have two births within the system. Yeah. Now, I think it's completely, again, spurious what Buddha Gosa goes off and does with this material because actually what the Buddha is indicating by Nama Rupa is not the birth of a physical body and the mind at this stage. What he's actually talking about is the patterning or the blueprinting of what is going to come later within it. You know, so if you think of Nama Rupa as being the way in your present that you're actually determining, if you like, your future. So you can still use the temporality, but you don't have to talk about it as lifetimes here. You're determining your future by the way that you condition and pattern your mind now and the way that you treat your bodies. You're blueprinting yourself up for your future moments at this moment. Now, we can see that as being future moments 20 years' time, or we can see that future moments as being 10 minutes' time. It doesn't really matter. Now, I'm saying, actually, it's a very rapid process. Everything we're doing now is determining what we're going to become in the next moment, in the next moment, in the next moment, unless we influence it. So this is the kind of blueprinting that's occurring. Now, why is it occurring in this way? Well, that's because the sankharas that are formed from forming are dependent on the confusion, which is then patterning consciousness, and consciousness is part of the nama rupa. It's not separate from the Nama Rupa. It's actually, in a way, again, we've got a double thing. Dependent on consciousness, there is Nama Rupa. We're conscious of mind and body. We're conscious of the patterning that's going on. So this is a very, very dynamic process. The Buddha is playing here. Again, Buddha Ghost has completely lost the, the plot as regards to this. <laughs> and I'd say that actually with a slight tongue-in-cheek because... Um, again, he hasn't got the philosophical background of, of India there, because within early Indian thought, the sense of the real person was the Nama, was the name of somebody. The name was intimately tied up with who the person was. Yeah. And the Buddha is taking this, and again, he's I can't go into detail about this, because it was just, this would be another half an afternoon. But he's taking this and playing with something that's there within Indian thought of his own time and again saying, no, it isn't. It's not the real sense of person. These are just the processes that are being patterned. This is not the fixed individual tied to some sense of name with a particular form. Yeah. He's actually playing with it. So it's again part of the background. I'm sorry if this sounds a bit kind of sketchy. Um, but it would take a lot more detail to go into it, and we just don't have time, unfortunately. But what he's doing is he's playing with the Indian background from which he arises yet again in this instance. Now, that poem that I read to you yesterday, the poem of creation, you'll find this going on in that as well. Yeah. When you really begin to analyse the Sanskrit terms and their relationship to the Pali here. So he plays so much 
with the doctrines, philosophies, religious ideas of his time. You know, so much so that by the time you get to the formation of something like the Theravada school as we know it, they've actually lost, not the plot here, but they've actually lost the context in which the Buddha was talking about this. This is actually one of the benefits, I think, actually we have in the West of modern scholarship. We can actually go back into this material and really begin to correlate what's going on in, say, Upanishadic thought, which is where this is derived from, Upanishadic thought, and what is going on in the Buddha's relationship to that thought and his ways of critiquing it. Yeah. Whereas the Upanishadic thought, with the idea of the Nama being related to the essence of the person, yeah, he is you know, basically undermining that metaphysical sense by putting it directly back into a practical sense. You know, this is you as you are patterning yourself now through all of this stuff. Let's not think about it as being some kind of sense removed about essences of individuals and um, essences living on another plateau. You know, of any of the stuff that was going on in some of this Upanishadic thinking. Um, but what's actually going on right now? So you should be concerned about the way that you're patterning your Nama Rupa now. Yeah. Yeah, just actually, can, can we hold off for questions for a little bit? Can I get it in yeah, at some, at some, yeah, later on, but I just want to get through a few more points before moving. Vijnana, consciousness object, you made that point, a big point. Mm. Now, in Nama Rupa, is that consciousness noticing that the body is a separate object? No, it isn't. It's showing actually their interrelationship. It's actually their intimate interrelationship. Um, one of the points I was making yesterday in relationship to the Kundas, and I think this, this is a really important point, um, particularly the way the body is often undervalued in comparison with the mind, is that the Buddha is always talking about consciousness and mind as always an embodied mind. Yeah. It's not a kind of free-floating thing. Now again, the tendency of the traditions has been to actually end up with a duality, with a separation. We get the elevation of mind over body. Um, and then you get all the ascetic practices coming back again, or ascetic practices. I'm sorry, I always mispronounce this for you. So. <laughs> but, you know, you get those things coming in because there's a denigration of the body in relationship to it. Now, now that's, I don't think, going on in the early text at all. You know, that, that the mind is an embodied mind. Yeah, and uh, this is this is what's actually this is why this intimate relationship between Nama Rupa. Yeah. How long have we been going? <laughs> Can you stand one more point before having a break? <laughs> this is a, this will be a quick one. So let me just write it up for you. Salayatana. Six sense spheres. Yeah, so the, the mind body has, possesses, and is conditioned, all this is conditioning the way that our senses operate. Now, in Buddhist thought, as you probably well know, there is five senses plus the men mental sense consciousness as well. So these are sense objects plus the consciousness that goes with them. 
So there's a nose sense consciousness, an eye sense consciousness, an ear sense consciousness, a body sense consciousness, and a mind sense consciousness too. And the job of mind sense consciousness is to cognize mental stuff, just like the eye is to cognize visual stuff here. Um, and they're talking about s- as spheres of existence, because in a way the eye is something which literally palpates or encompasses the visual field. This is why it's called an ayatana, which is a sphere in Pali. And then after this, it all starts to get a lot more interesting. <laughs> um, perhaps we ought to pause there, because I, the other stuff's going to take a little bit more time. So perhaps ten minutes? Nine okay. minutes. <laughs> Any more offers? 